And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to be our teacher this morning. We open our hearts to you. Thank you that you are kind, that your love is steadfast, that we don't need to run and hide. There's no condemnation, though there may be sadness. Thank you that you are our shepherd, our rock, our Abba. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you were here last week, you know that we are um, engaging in a study of the minor prophets. And Todd the Elder (laughs) I think by just a few months um, gave us kind of the context last week, right? So in Hosea, um, God, through Hosea, God is speaking to the Israelites who lived in an agricultural economy and who therefore would be naturally worried about the fruitfulness of the land year to year and season to season. So much so, of course, that we know they begin hedging their bets. And they begin kind of adopting the worship of the local fertility god, Baal, just to make sure. (laughs) Just to make sure they were covering all the bases. And, you know, unfortunately, this entangled them in some other practices. As the fertility god Baal approved of, in people's minds, uh, temple prostitution, because that was a kind of honoring of fertility, ritual sexual practices, even human sacrifice was a part of Baal worship. And so the people of Israel began to be entangled in these worship, these practices, and supporting these practices. And so what God has to do or does through Hosea is he's thinking, how can I give them kind of a shock of recognition into what they're actually doing? How can I wake them up? How can I call them back? And so he stages this real-life drama in Hosea. And, you know, I was sitting right back there last week when the opening of Hosea was read. And... um, I actually had never heard it read aloud in church. (laughs) And I was so startled that I actually laughed a little nervously in my seat. In case you missed it, here is how Hosea starts. The first time God spoke to Hosea, he said, find a whore and marry her. Make this whore the mother of your children. And here is why. This whole country has become a whorehouse. Unfaithful to me, God. Now, I think we can agree that this is an unusual opening to a Christian sacred text, right? (laughs) I mean, it has to be one of the most unusual commands to any person in Scripture. And I think I laughed nervously because it was so unvarnished, so direct, so startling. There's no kind of wind-up like, you know, the kingdom of God is like, you know. It was so dramatic. You know, it reminds me, uh, my, my background is, uh, as an English professor, and it reminds me of the American short story writer Flannery O'Connor. Some of you may know her. Uh, she wrote in the 50s, and often she wrote about racism and other ugly injustices that were kind of normal to people in her time. 
And she was asked once about her kind of morally shocking characters and events in her short stories. And she said, you know, here's the problem of a Christian novelist. He says, sometimes you have to startle people into seeing the injustices that they view as normal. And she writes, when you assume that your audience holds the same beliefs that you do, you can relax a little and use more normal ways of talking. But when you have to assume that they do not hold the same beliefs you do, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the heart of hearing, you have to shout. And for the almost blind, you have to draw large and startling figures. Well, I think this is what God is doing in Hosea. He's drawing large and startling figures. He's trying to get them to see something. He's creating a drama. And so again, the English professor in me is kind of making a shameless plug for the importance of narrative and the elements of story, which are everywhere in Scripture. See, the, the idea is that when wa- God wants us to see something, he actually becomes or recruits storytellers and poets. This is what Jesus does, right? I mean, Jesus is standing right in front of people. But what does he say? He gives them pictures. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the door. I am the shepherd. I am the light. I am the path. People ask Jesus theoretical questions like, who is my neighbor? And, you know, what is lawful on the Sabbath? And he, and he tells some stories about being attacked by robbers and sheep falling into pits. <laughs> I mean, who talks like this? <laughs> Nobody talks like this. But God does. I mean, Jesus, I mean, I, I subscribe to the school that says Jesus was probably the smartest person that ever lived. So I don't think he was talking down to people, trying to think, well, these are simple people, so you have to give them simple pictures. I was thinking he was trying to work up their imagination. Because, you know, God created us as spirit body creatures. And he knows that because we have bodies and senses, that is how we really come to know things deeply and intimately. Through our minds, of course, but our minds work through our bodies and senses. Now, the themes of Hosea, they're pretty weighty theological themes, right? They're sin, grace, redemption, covenant, and the phrase I want to focus on today, steadfast love. Now, when we want to master theological concepts, of course, we kind of, you know, rightly unpack them in philosophical language or theological language when we're trying to master them. But it seems like when God wants us to be mastered by them, he often talks about these things in the earthier form of stories and pictures and metaphors, things that you and I already kind of feel in our bones. And so that's what God is doing in Hosea. And the metaphor he's choosing for himself through Hosea is the jilted lover. saying Hosea has become unfaithful. She, he could have said, equally said he, if the culture, if the dominant metaphor of a prostitute was a him, but in this case he uses she. says she has become unfaithful, and I, God, am the jilted lover. And so he begins this metaphor of a marriage throughout Hosea of someone who's in possible marriage circumstances where someone's married to a chronically unfaithful spouse. And so the complaint we hear today in our passage is an obvious one. 
you don't really love me. You don't have what's called steadfast love. And so let me read a couple of the passages again from our readings now um, in a translation that uses the phrase steadfast love. God says, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and there is no knowledge of God in the land. And then in 6.6, and it's always nice to get a bottom line thing from God, right? (laughs) What does God want? Here's what he says. I desire steadfast love. Not just sacrifice, not just going to services. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Well, I suspect those words, plainly spoken, in this kind of a story about unfaithfulness, I suspect, you know what? You and I don't need a lot of theological unpacking here. We get it. You and I have heard a lot of stories about love. We have watched a lot of stories about love. We know, you and I know, relationships in our bones. You know, my daughters, they're 18 and 21. I think they've already seen a thousand movies. I'm not not kidding, maybe a thousand. Most of them about love, and of course, most of those stories are about disappointment in love, where people were not always steadfast, where they were weak or unreliable. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, they've watched so many movies, I'm thinking one day when we open Netflix, you're just going to say, congratulations, you are done with Netflix. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm fully expecting. So we've all absorbed hundreds of stories of love. We know when they talk about unfaithfulness and, and infidelity and disappointment, and we, we know exactly what God is talking about. We've heard the words, you don't love me, or you don't really know me many times, and those are the words that are exactly in this passage. There is no knowledge of God. There is no steadfast love. So you and I get it. And steadfast love, you know, even though it's not exactly an image, I bet when I say the word steadfast love, if I asked you to think of an image, you would think of one immediately. It would probably be the image of a rock, something that can't be moved. It could be a mountain. We sang this morning how great... um, Your love is amazing, steady, and unchanging. Your love is a mountain firm beneath my feet. That is the image that comes with something steadfast, right? You don't even have to call it up. It is suddenly this image of something that cannot be moved. God uses this word steadfast love or hesed in Hebrew to describe himself, right? Psalm 95, the opening prayer, the opening psalm of the morning, says, let us shout to the Lord the rock of our salvation. We get the picture. Steadfast love is this thing not easily moved, right? Stability and instability, these are basic metaphors in our lives that we feel in our bones, right? You've all stepped on a stone going down a hill that was not embedded like you thought, and you slip. We've all walked on sand. We've all walked on hard ground. We felt earthquakes. We've leaned on things that have given way, right? You and I, stability and instability are basic felt metaphors of our lives. We know them in our bones. We feel them in our bodies. And so we know, we know what's being talked about here when God says, I desire steadfast love. And you know what else I think comes along with that phrase in our bodies? I think we find it beautiful. I think we find steadfast love beautiful. We intuitively feel the goodness of steadfast love, and we're drawn to it. I mean, who among us, you know, (laughs) finds beautiful someone who leaves a relationship at the first sign of difficulty or boredom, constantly switching relationships. I mean, no one finds that beautiful. 
maybe pleasurable for one of the two people in the relationship. It's not beautiful. No one finds that beautiful. No, steadfast love. We intuitively not only have an image, but we are intuitively drawn to it, to the idea. There's a philosopher named Elaine Scarry who's written a book on beauty. And she says, you know what happens when we see something beautiful? Is we want to imitate it. We want to somehow kind of have it become part of us. We want to be connected to the beautiful. So when artists see something beautiful, they want to draw it again. When writers see something beautiful, they want to write about it. When you and I see something beautiful, we want to tell somebody else about it. We want to relive that moment. We want to tell them the story, tell them the scene, tell them about the moment. When people see the beauty of a child, they think, gosh, maybe we should have children. We want to reproduce beauty. That's how beauty works in us. We want it to become a part of us. So as you sit and we talk about steadfast love here, if you're feeling it, it would be natural to say, you know, I want to be connected to that. I want to embody steadfast love. And so the next obvious question, if you want to reproduce something beautiful, is how, Lord? How do we engage in the steadfast love that is beautiful and that you call us to? That you call. Well, I'm going I'm to give you what I think are two, are two ways to help. And there are two more images that are used in our passage. And one is the image of turn or return. And the other image in this passage is to seek the face of God. So, turn or return as an image for steadfast love occurs 20 times in Hosea in a relatively short book. So in our passage today, the prophet in the first verse of chapter 6 speaks on what he hopes is behalf of the people. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. And return is an image, right? We know what return is. Theologically, we know it's an image of repentance. But, you know, you and I see turnings all day long. We know what a turning is. We know it in our bodies, right? We we know when we're behind a car, there's always that surprising sweep of the U-turn. You think they're going to turn left, but they, turn, they make a U-turn. Like, wow, look at that. We know those U-turns. We often leave the house and suddenly turn back. Oh, I forgot something. <laughs> Our bodies are turning all day long. Those of us who work outside the home, we return most days to home. We've seen people turn away from arguments and fights, actually walk away if they're mature. We hear of people who return to a husband or a spouse, to a family. We know return. We know what return looks like. We, 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 we return, we turn all the time. So when Hosea says, let us return to the Lord, we feel that motion in our body. And I just want to say, I think steadfast love involves some kind of habitual life of return. Return from other calls, maybe. Other longings, other lusts that may send us in a different direction. Last week I was driving to work. I work about 35 minutes from home. I was almost there. I was like one exit from... And it, you know, it suddenly occurred to me, you know, my daughter is leading a high school rally today. And, it's, and I kind of knew that. It was in there somewhere. And, and then I thought, wait, she's graduating. This is going to be her last high school rally, and she's leading it. And I thought, I'm going the wrong way. <laughs> I called, I rescheduled my one appointment. I only had one appointment I had to be there for. That was no problem. 
I pulled off the next exit, went over the overpass, I turned around, and I went back. Um, that was the right thing to do. It was a turning toward something that I knew um, was a loving thing and the loving person to turn back to. Um, so we're accustomed, you and I, to thinking of repentance or turning as a change of mind, which it is, but it's really a change of way, too. A return involves practices. Um, you know, Jesus does say, I am the truth, but he also says, I am the way. And by the way, he also says, I am the life. And so one person says, you know what the return of repentance is? The return of repentance is to change the direction in which you're looking for life. I'm going to say that again. The turn of repentance that leads to steadfast love is changing the direction in which you're looking for life. So I just want to offer a couple examples then of what such a return could look like. What is the turning to steadfast love, the turning of steadfast love look like? Well, you know, one, one turning might be the turning of daily prayer, morning or evening prayer. See, morning, morning prayer, for instance, is the habit in which I return from the crazy dreams of the night, right? You've been in some other world, some other story, who knows where. And you wake up in the morning and you say, you know what, I'm going to begin my day by turning to the Lord. That is a movement of steadfast love. The daily return to God in the morning. Or evening prayer. You know, we've been out in the world all day long. We've heard the calls of 3,000 advertisements. That the the uh, average person sees 3,000 ads every day. Did you know that? We've been entangled in the world of our employers, <laughs> in the ways of the world. And in evening prayer, we come back and we say, Lord, I, I return to you. You know, it, uh, when someone's ordained in the Anglican church as a, as a priest... There's an oddly specific requirement, and it's that that person would practice morning and evening prayer every day. <laughs> but you know, it comforts me to know that the person who's leading my church is devoted daily to the steadfast love of God in returning to prayer. That comforts me. And of course, it's not just those two times of the day, right, we do this, but it's meant to be an unceasing prayer, in, in a, a kind of constant turning throughout the day, so that if we do kind of stray, we only get a few paces down the road where we turn back and say, oh, no, no, no. I want to engage in some steadfast love. I want to return. The other practice of return that is indicative of steadfast love, I would say, would be obedience. It's another practice of return. Right, every choice of the day, right, is like we're at a crossroads. I mean, I could go this way, I could go this way. And so to choose again to obey in any area is to choose again the steadfast action of God's way, right? I mean, even if you just made one area of obedience a daily practice, right? We all have areas of obedience in which we're chronically disobedient. <laughs> in which we just have a, we're just prone to wander, as the hymn puts it, in one area. What would it be like to say, you know, in just in that one area, I'm going to practice return to God. I'm going to practice the steadfast love, the motion of steadfast love that is the return of obedience. 
You might say, you know what, I'm, I'm really angry at this person. I'm going to turn away from that anger every time it rises, and I'm going to seek to bless them and Lord to help me. You know, I'm going to visit this neighbor that I know is struggling. I'm going to turn away for a moment from my agenda, and I'm going to turn toward them, Lord, help me. You know, I'm going to give generously to this church or that injustice, that cause against injustice. I'm just going to turn for a moment, turn my resources to that for a moment, in a kind of steadfast love, just in this one area, Lord. You know, when somebody asked Dallas Willard, you know, how do, how do, how do we kind of... Um, embody this, this stuff that you teach. And he says, well, here, here, here's what you do. He, he's talking to a church. Here's what you do. You create groups and just have each group have one focus of obedience. Just that one turning of steadfast love in this one area. And he goes, you know, that will create some major change in your whole life, in all areas of obedience. And so how do we reproduce the steadfast love? How do we make it a part of ourselves? How do we engage in the beautiful? Well, it's going to be through these practices of turning, whether it's prayer or obedience or some other thing. And the only second thing I'd offer here is the metaphor where God says, you know, seek my face. Because the danger will be that we'd fall in love with our own obedience, right? We fall in love with our own turning. We'd fall in love with our own goodness. And we lose the relational dimension that God is calling the Israelites here to. And it's a little confusing when God says, seek my face, because, of course, we're told, we're told that no one sees, sees the face of God and lives. Um, God has no face. <laughs> Literally, right? But you know what? You and I see faces all the time. We get it. You know what the face says? The human face says, do not turn away. Live in my presence. Commune with me. Open the door, see my face, invite me to come in and eat with you. See, the, the human face actually holds us in obedience, right? It's very hard to be unfaithful to someone right before their eyes. It's very hard to commit adultery if your spouse was right before your eyes. The human face holds us. By the way, there's schools, whole schools of philosophy in which they explore how the human face holds us to relational commitment, the literal human face. Well, that's what God means, right? It doesn't mean literally seek my face. He's saying, practice my presence. That the turning of steadfast love is not just a turning of action, not just a turning to principles, it's a turning to a person. It's to seek the face of God, to practice the presence of God. And we're told in the scriptures that that's life-changing. Paul takes the word right out, words right out of Hosea's mouth, right? For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see What? Face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even I has been fully known. These words might be taken right out of Hosea. Seek my face. So if you're a regular here, uh, by the way, you know that you attend a church whose subtitle is The Church of God for the Sake of Others. So it's appropriate as we finish to ask, how could our personal habits of return of steadfast love help others? How could they be for the sake of others? Well, you know, what I, you know what I've noticed? I've noticed that consistency and faithfulness, no matter where you find it, is kind of admirable. People are drawn to it. I found out that a friend of mine um, who's a poet reads the massive novels, The Brothers, Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, every year. 
He reads it every year. I know, I know a speaker who refuses speaking engagements in July so he and his wife can replant their garden. <clears throat> wow. I know another Christian who sits with God for an hour a day. There's something beautiful about consistency, isn't there? I mean, maybe because it's just so rare. <laughs> something beautiful simply about someone's faithfulness to something. And you know, it's even more beautiful, right, when it's faithfulness to a relationship. I've noticed in restaurants, when people celebrate anniversaries, there's a little more applause from the restaurant than if somebody just celebrates a birthday, right? <laughs> Isn't that true? It's like, oh, an anniversary, it's so good. Consistency in a relationship. I tell people my parents were married for 65 years. They're amazed. I've been meeting with my high school friends every week pretty much for 40 years. People are amazed. Now, there's all kinds of struggle and hurt in those relationships. <laughs> They're not without their betrayals, their sins. But what I think is moving is the idea that these people haven't given up completely. They haven't walked away completely. And sometimes I know it's necessary. But still we find that kind of steadfast love beautiful where it's found. And you know, I'll tell you, I think the beauty of steadfast love, especially in our culture today, may have a better chance of saving the world than truth alone. So in the minutes that just follow here, or the seconds that follow, I want you to ponder the beauty of the steadfast love of God. And I want you to ponder whether God is calling you to reproduce that beauty in your own life. Is there a daily habit of return? A daily habit of prayer? A daily habit of obedience? Or some other return of steadfast love, maybe that you once practiced? It will not only um, give you life, but it will give life to others. So Holy Spirit, be our guide in this. Amen.